This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Students who want the best jobs need a curriculum called STEM, Science, Engineering, Math, and Technology. At least that's the claim we hear from many education experts and business leaders. But a new report finds most of Colorado students don't get STEM classes. Furthermore, this report shows there's no real way to measure whether those who do actually benefit. The author is Nick Garcia of Chalkbeat Colorado, the online education news service. Nick, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. A bit more about STEM, again, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, Before we get to your findings, to illustrate the idea of STEM, you visited a school in Highlands Ranch, which is actually called the STEM School and Academy, And here is what coursework there sounds like. Now my heart feels too sore from the blood pumping through My mind needs a direction to keep me from getting too caught up in dreams I've been having Okay, so that's part of an album that students produced. How does that relate to science, technology, engineering, and math? Sure. So as you pointed out, there's no real common definition of what STEM is yet. But one of the things that we know about STEM is that it's interdisciplinary. It's mixing and matching science, technology, engineering, math with all the other subjects to to create a really rich project-based curriculum for students. So at the STEM school and academy in Highlands Ranch, you know, there are some there's some normalcy. Kids take band class, but they're also asked to produce an album using studio grade technology. So it's just injecting that technology in places you wouldn't expect it. All right. Getting to know editing and all that kind of layering of sound, things like that, waveforms maybe. Um, You also write about a technology conference you attended where STEM students were doing everything from holding underwater car races to competing in debates. Right. Again, interdisciplinary. Yeah. In fact, I asked a student, why are you, what's a debate tournament at a, at a tech conference? And he said, well, you know, we had people from Google come in and tell us the reason why they end up firing people is because they can't speak about the technology they're developing. Huh. They don't know how to explain how this technology is going to make their lives better. So that's why STEM is really all about mixing and matching all the different disciplines into one coherent sort of blended uh, learning experience for students. But it's not enough to program. You have to be able to talk about programming. And write about it, too. And write about it, yeah. And yet, your reporting shows that this is a long way from being fully implemented in Colorado. So you looked at the 30 biggest districts in the state. Right, and that accounts for about 80% of all students enrolled. Okay, the vast majority of Colorado students. Only about two out of every seven students appeared to have access to STEM education. What's the deal here? So to be clear, it doesn't mean that students aren't getting science or math. They are. They have to. But what that means is that there's only a few schools that have really embraced this idea of thinking about these subjects in a holistic fashion. That, that kind of interdisciplinary. Exactly. Okay. That have started to blend the two uh, or blend the multiple subjects and taken on this project-based learning style of approach. Okay. You sent surveys. We sent surveys and... to the 30 largest school districts and it was all self-reported. You know, we did not, you know, define what STEM is because again, there is no common definition. So it was up to the school districts to tell us what they are considering to be STEM and which students have access to it. Okay. And the schools that responded that they don't have STEM per se, is it that they weren't interested in having it or that they were and there were obstacles to its implementation? Were you able to 
to get those sort of qualitative answers? Yeah, I think that, first of all, because we have a lack of a definition of what STEM is, there are some schools who are probably doing it, but don't know they're doing it. Or there is such a... um, There is a misnomer that uh, STEM is expensive to do. You know, one of the uh, problems I heard over and over and over again is that we don't have the money to do it. Well, in fact, you don't really need a lot of money to do STEM. It's really about bringing teachers together and asking them to think about how they teach just a little bit differently, making students do more project-based work, um, you know, planning uh, co-lessons together. And yet, we mentioned at the start the idea of audio engineering software. You know, that that doesn't come cheap. No, it doesn't. But as we reported, you know, the federal government, businesses, they're looking to inject cash into schools and, and technology into schools in order to have uh, have these types of programs more readily available for students. So there are opportunities out there. This notion that there's not one definition of STEM surprises me, just given how often <laughs> STEM is talked about. How How is it that, that uh, there's not one page to be on here? It, it's... That was the most startling thing I found, too. Um, I think there's a lot of different camps in STEM. There are some people who believe STEM really means, you know, having these augmented classes, you know, just robotics. Then there are people who believe that it should be, you know, baked into every single um, class. Again, going back to STEM high, where kids are, you know, using technology in their band class. And then there's this sort of mix in the middle. And we're starting to see a lot more schools, especially district-run schools, your traditional high schools, try to do a merger of both. I ran into an educator who introduced me to the concept of STEAM. Sure. Adding an A to STEM uh, being the arts. Did you hear much talk about STEAM? You know, there were a few people who did. Well, don't forget about STEAM. Um But I think that the people who are the disciples of STEM really believe that the the model already would incorporate the arts. All right. As we heard in the introduction with the song. Let's question this whole thing. Um, So (laughs) STEM is something of a rallying cry among some in, in the business world and in education circles. Is there evidence it works? Not yet. So I would argue that most of the schools most um hardest pushes for stems are just a few years into into really um in the schools and so there's a bit of a data lag that we're looking at i don't most stem experts i talked to said give it two or three more years we should start to see something um one of the things that we do know is that the schools we did take a little bit of a closer look at, we didn't really see uh, increased math scores or increased science scores when um, they adopted the STEM model. Some STEM advocates would argue that that's not necessarily important. You want to measure STEM by the quality of the project kids are creating. You want to measure, you know, are teachers working together So not only is there not a definition of what STEM is, but there's also not any sort of cohesive agreement on how do we measure quality, Mm. which is, you know, what a lot of people in the state say is the next step for us to tackle. This is problematic because obviously so much depends on test scores. And and if, if STEM advocates are saying standardized tests aren't the greatest way of measuring this, this way of teaching... Uh, the front and the back end don't match in some regards. And I think that's something that the STEM community and STEM educators are going to have to tackle. 
Why is there such urgency on behalf of STEM advocates? Well, there's such an urgency because Colorado's economy especially is becoming increasingly digital. You know, the the state has measured that over the next, you know, decade, our best jobs are going to be, in fact, I believe almost two thirds of our best jobs are going to require some sort of a STEM education, you know, just to get into the middle class. An area of concern to educators is the achievement gap, obviously, between white students and students of color or from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And your findings related to STEM were somewhat hopeful there. Yeah. One of the uh, things we found is that in school districts where there have been a strong emphasis for STEM, they're putting these programs in schools that serve predominantly at-risk students. So students who qualify for free and reduced lunch, uh, which is a proxy for poverty, students who uh, are of color, black Latinos. So that was um, very, very promising. I want to push back on, on STEM. Um, sure. What do critics say about the emphasis on STEM or maybe an overemphasis on STEM? Yeah, I think one of the concerns is sort of like the the great concern about testing backlash, only focusing on English and math, that some other subjects like the humanities might get pushed aside or history might get pushed aside. Um, I think that there are some, there is a little bit of evidence that you know, as when the education community embraces something, um, other things fall to the side. Um, But if you look at schools like STEM High, like North Glen High, like Pueblo Central, they're taking great pains to make sure that those core classes, English, history, are incorporated into a really well-rounded education. Another trend in education, I think, is that the drumbeat that you must attend college is softening somewhat and that there is a new appreciation for those who might not take a college route, but a technical school or something like that. Absolutely. How does STEM relate to that? Yeah. So what we're starting to see in Colorado are these new P-Tech campuses or schools within schools where students sign up and it's a five to six year program where they can go get a college degree. I'm sorry, they can go and get a high school diploma and an associate's degree from a partnering community college, as well as have a good chance to get a job at a tech company that's in the mix. I think, you know, again, when I talk to other educators who might not have a P-Tech school, they're always thinking about how can they get their students um, some sort of a certificate or some sort of credentialing. So again, up in the uh, St. Verain School District, they have a partnership with Apple where students can actually get credentialed to work at Apple stores as techs. So when they go off to college or if they... Uh, when they leave high school, they can go work at the Apple store and start making well above minimum wage. Well, this is still early and there are lots of questions to answer, it sounds like, Nick Garcia. Many, many, many questions. And I think uh, schools are going to be tackling them. Nick Garcia, Deputy Bureau Chief for uh, Chalkbeat Colorado, and his series is called STEM in Colorado. Just ahead, the life and death of Matthew Shepard inspires a new choral work. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I love theater. I love good friends. I love succeeding. I love pasta. I love jogging. I love walking and feeling good. I love Europe and driving and music and These voices are singing about the childhood of Matthew Shepard, the gay Wyoming teenager who became a national figure 
after he was beaten and left for dead in 1998. The music comes from a new choral piece called Considering Matthew Shepard. It explores the young man's life, death, and legacy. Two guests join us to talk about this music. Craig Heller-Johnson composed the piece. He leads the choral group Conspirare, based in Austin, Texas. They just released a recording of the piece this month. And Jason Marsden is executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which is actually based in Denver. He knew Shepard personally, did research for this piece, and he gives talks that accompany performances. Gentlemen, I'm grateful that you are joining us today, and I want to say to our listeners that Uh, Further into the conversation, there may be some potentially offensive language as we discuss this piece. So, Craig, uh, some of the words that the choir sings come directly from Matthew Shepard's writings. I love theater. I love good friends. I love succeeding. I love pasta. How was it to make choral music out of a teenager's journal entries? Amazingly moving. It was uh, an incredible uh, experience to sit with those pages from high school notebook of Matt's, and uh, I especially love that litany that you just played. Uh, it was this beautiful litany, um, including all these very regular, ordinary things that uh, Matt loved, and uh, I knew we had to give Matt voice because as I learned in the process of creating this piece, that we as the world really know Matthew Shepard, but uh, of course, Matt was the son of Judy and Dennis Shepard, and as I spoke first, first opportunity I ever had to speak with Judy Shepard. Um, this was something that was very clear to me how important it was that Matt himself as a young boy, not just the iconic Matthew Shepard who has become a household name uh, around the world, that he be present in this piece. So it was very moving. The piece lasts, I think, about a hundred minutes. How did you decide to write a concert-length meditation on Shepard's story? Right. Well, back in 1998, uh, when this tragic event occurred, and uh, when we learned that Matthew had died, um, this pierced my heart, <clears throat> as it uh, was a similar thing for many people around the world. And uh, uh, I knew I needed to respond in some way, is what my heart was telling me. I, and I wanted to respond musically, but it took many years, actually, before I felt uh, ready to do that. It took a long time, and uh, I didn't know what form that expression would take. As a classical choral musician, I had the thought that this could be a passion setting. We have, you know, m- many of our most important musical works of Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, are passion settings, the St. Matthew Passion and the St. Ba- uh, John Passion. And I thought perhaps it would be a beautiful way to try and remember Matt if I would compose a passion sitting. So that's where I started. And then the piece actually became a whole lot more than just the story of the suffering. It needed to become this larger invitation to return to love and to return to remember who we are as human beings in the deepest sense of our essence. And so it needed a, like a big song, you might say. You talk about the the passion that is the the passion of the Christ. Do you, do you see Matt Shepard as a Christ-like figure? Well, I think many people uh, have noticed uh, symbolic uh, 
references. Certainly, this is nothing that the Shepherd family has ever gone out that, uh, and and advocated for. Uh, uh, but uh, and nor do I try to do that in this piece. But some of those references are um, meaningful, I think, for those of us who grew up in, in with that story of Christ's passion. Uh, there were some physical, uh, symbolic references, of course, with the fence yep. um, that are very clear. Uh, so it's it's that that's all context. Uh, the specific story that I was really interested in representing was that of a young man, a young gay man, um, who was both ordinary and extraordinary, and then whose life and death um, has had a tremendous impact on our world and on breaking the heart open, on breaking the heart of the world open. And, and really, we've seen change as a result of, of uh, significant change as a result of the life and death of, of Matthew Shepard. Craig, you reached out to the Matthew Shepard Foundation again here in Denver as you researched and developed the piece. And uh, Jason, how did how did you help bring this piece together? Well, as the director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, my responsibility is to be the focal point for people who care about this story and, and we hope and, and we're gratified to see are inspired by it to take action, uh, political action, personal action. Artistic action. Artistic action. And this piece is... Um, uh, is a part of a constellation of artistic responses to Matt's death that include documentary film, uh, television movie, uh, a magnificent book of poetry by Leslie and Newman called October Morning, which uh, uh, provides uh, much of the libretto for this piece. Oh. Um, and so our goal is to prevent crimes like this from ever happening to another family and to another victim, if at all possible. Um, and one way that we can do that is to change hearts and minds about the importance of respect for diversity, of inclusion, of understanding for LGBTQ people everywhere so that they are less subject to violence and more welcome in the circle of society. And so uh, Craig approached the Shepherds and the Foundation with uh, what is obviously a very ambitious project and um, – uh, was able, uh, I think, very sensitively to take the copious amount of writing, uh, Judy's memoir, uh, academic works, uh, other artistic uh, works, and uh, distill that through his own lens um, and find a way to place Matthew Shepard, the human being, back into his own story and help us all understand the importance of uh, fighting these crimes. Just briefly, does the Matthew Shepard Foundation say no to some people who approach it with proposals? Uh, yes, uh, more, much more often than we say yes. Uh, and it really is the Shepherd's decision. Huh. Well, the music in this uh, oratorio is a co- real collage of genres, and it actually opens by quoting, I guess if you will, a, a Bach keyboard prelude. Why start this piece about a teenager in Wyoming with this rather famous music that's centuries old, Craig? Mm-hmm. It's a great question, and it's uh, the idea of all the very first words that the singers sing is, is, is word is all, and this is meant to be an umbrella, a large tent that includes all of us. So this, in from the get-go, if there was a musical symbol that somehow. One, I wanted to say this is important, and sort of Bach helped me do that. Uh, there's such a uh, the C major prelude is such an iconic world. The C major prelude also in, goes through uh, uh, 
a number of keys as as it, within the little prelude as it moves through harmonically. So there's a way in which it starts to hint at all. So it's just a little bit of a hint of a reference. The key of C major is also, for me, significant. We begin in C major, we end in C major. But all of that just to say that it's it's, it's sort of referential in terms of establishing significance of this and uh, the simplicity of it and um, uh, sort of the iconic nature of this whole story as well. Let's hear what it sounds like when the singers come in. talking about the new choral piece called Considering Matthew Shepard. And actually, I want to play one of the more unusual moments from this piece. Um, This is actually a country song about the fence where Matthew Shepard was beaten and uh, left for dead. Out and alone on the endless empty prairie stars bless me, the sun warms me, the wind soothes me. It's actually quite a beautiful piece of music for such a grisly setting. What what are you trying to do here, Craig? Mm-hmm. Well, this is... Uh, absolutely uh, an American story. This is a story from the American West, and uh, it paints a picture. It, uh, there's the story of the fence. There are six references to the fence, uh, poetically and musically in this, which come from the book Jason mentioned, uh, Leslie Newman's October Morning. So the fence becomes really this observer. So in this particular place, this objective witness, if you will, the fence begins prior to the tragic events of that night, um, open alone, uh, on the prairie, blue sky, clouds floating by, all is well. So the listener initially is invited to identify as that observer too, prior to the events. And so this is the first place where that fence is established as that witness of all of the story. Oh my, F- fence's character in some regards. Mm-hmm. The piece mentions um, Westboro Baptist Church, and this is the anti-gay group that protested Shepard's funeral. Uh, here's a sample of that portion, and it, it does contain some strong language. Quoting some of the signs, I think, that those protesters carried. Jason, how is it to hear that in this piece? It's eerie. The day of Matt's funeral in Casper, Wyoming in 1998 was a tremendous blizzard, and the Westboro Baptist group was protesting across the street in a designated protest area, waving signs that said those things and other worse things, uh, with a couple of five- and six-year-old kids standing out in that snowstorm holding signs like that as hundreds of us in black stood in wet, driving snow under umbrellas waiting to get into the church. And it was the first time that this this alleged church had really brought itself to national attention. And 
of course, has gone on to become even more notorious with their protests of soldiers' funerals and uh, achieved almost universal disdain, which is a difficult task, but one they have excelled at. Is it draining to perform this piece for the singers, Craig? Mm-hmm. The, the rehearsal process initially was uh, very emotional and challenging, and sometimes singers would need to leave, take a break, and then come back. <clears throat> As we've experienced the piece in an ongoing way, of course, it's always difficult to sing these words. I hated to even ask our singers to have these words in their mouths. It was very important, however, to you know reveal and expose this the hatred for what it is. Uh, but yes, uh, it, it can be. And also, it's been incredibly uplifting because, you know, what what I felt in the whole last year prior to the premiere was almost as if knock, Matt himself had been knocking at the door of my heart from the inside. But just I felt this directive of, you know, don't leave me at the fence. The story continues. So there, it was a delicate walk that we needed to walk and I needed to as a composer. But how do we uh, come from the story with an audience and with singers to invite us back into the fullness of life? Um, my question that uh, lived through the whole process was a personal one, you know, in the midst of such confounding darkness and hatred, uh, confounding realities in our life, is love anywhere to be found at the core of this? So this was always my question. And there is a way through music that we explore that, and it appears that we continue to find an answer, which is yes, that as we experience Matt's story and are in a community gathered together, remembering that core of love, that we are lifted. So it's 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 really hard, and it's also quite extraordinarily beautiful. I want to wrap up with the piece Pilgrimage, because um, I think, Craig, you actually visited the place where the fence had been. Uh, is the fence still there? It's been moved. No. It's been moved? Sections of it were reincorporated into other fencing by the property owner not very many months after the crime occurred. The site remains uh, popular amongst people who wish to pay their respects. It's on private property, but quite visible from the end of the road. And they seem to allow people to sort of make that pilgrimage? It's, uh, it's been granted permission from time to time by the landowners. Um, it's, a little, it's a little bit dicey. They're um, very conscious of uh, liability. Gentlemen, nice to speak with you. Jason Marston, executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which is based in Denver, and Craig Hella Johnson leads the vocal group Conspirare and composed Considering Matthew Shepard. The recording is out now. You can see footage from a live performance at cprnews.org. Climate change leads our regular feedback segment, Loud and Clear. I talked last week with State Senator Kevin Lundberg, a berthed Republican, and Scott Denning, an atmospheric scientist at Colorado State University. Senator Lundberg said one reason he is suspicious of warming is that his planting date hasn't changed in 60 years. 
Listener Joe Ramey, a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Grand Junction, said he has monitored sites across Colorado and he takes exception with Lundberg's assertion. Looking at all these individual sites, some 20 sites around the region, I've looked back through the climate record. And what I've seen is some site-to-site variation But overall, when you average those together, there has been significant warming, especially in the min temperatures, since the mid-1970s. He said they're min temperatures, as in minimum. I've noticed that folks, you know, remember that back in the day, this is how things were, and it doesn't necessarily match up with the climate records. Another listener, Christopher Harker of Denver, was not pleased with the discussion. He wrote at CPRnews.org, Setting aside the brevity of time slotted for airing this topic, the general tenor, quality, and direction of the questions was aggravating. Couldn't you have offered more balance to this unbalanced question? To be clear, our goal was not to debate whether climate change has a human factor. That much is clear from the science. And CPR News has and will air many stories on how climate is changing in Colorado. In this case, we wanted to explore the thinking of a prominent lawmaker who believes the reaction to climate change is overblown. Also last week, we spoke with two Colorado teachers who grapple with how to teach students about the 9-11 attacks. There is no statewide curriculum on that. We put a call out to other educators asking if and how they broached the attacks in the classroom. Constance Holland of Grand Junction responded. In 2001, she taught at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Prescott, Arizona. And on September 11th, she coincidentally had planned a discussion of terrorism in her global policy course. But classes were canceled that day. When they resumed, she had her students role play, with half of the class acting as the U.S. administration and the other as terrorist leaders. Then halfway through the class, the two sides switched roles. Many of the students who were first in the terrorist role were really upset about it initially that they had to do this, and they had already responded very grudgingly. Those who had done the U.S. administrative role They were very angry, and it was all about, we're going to wipe these terrorists off the face of the earth. But when they switched roles, the group who had been in al-Qaeda and who now were playing the U.S. administration, their response was much more measured than in the first role play. And the group, which was now being the terrorist leadership, expressed a lot more concern about what the U.S. might unleash on them and the thing that, that I thought was really useful as a teacher is I saw both a diminishing of student anger and a greater ability for them to put themselves in other shoes. Minor party candidates in Colorado's U.S. Senate race joined us last week, and the Green Party's Arnmen Coney got some support on our website. Bob McGrath of Arvada writes, We want to change and we want our planet back from the greedy corporations who are pillaging it for quarterly profits. There was feedback as well to my interview with the Libertarian candidate, Lily Tang Williams. Here is just one exchange from that conversation. I'd like to ask you about a bit of news that's come out this morning. The Libertarian presidential candidate was asked about Aleppo and did not know what Aleppo was. Are you aware of what happened? Actually, I am I just found that this morning, it's like, a, and you can educate me. You know, I don't know either. What is it? What Aleppo is? Yes. Uh, in Syria, do, do you know that that's sort of the epicenter of the conflict? Yeah, right. That's the Middle East conflict. But how do you explain this word? 
How do you? Well, it's the name of a place. Okay, just the name of the place.、No. I'm still learning a lot about foreign policies, even though the libertarian point of view on foreign policies is non-interventionism. But the second, but the strongest defense force, second to long, it's really peace through strength. And、uh, I, I like many I listeners, Sean Brindier of Denver wasn't impressed. He writes on the CPR News Facebook page, "I am disgusted by her ignorance, and we wonder how we are stuck with a two-party system." A reminder that we have requests in to interview both of the major party candidates for Senate as well in Colorado. Finally, in loud and clear, we want your thoughts on how walkable Denver is or isn't. Are there spots where you feel unsafe on foot, or places that are really well suited to walking? We're going to speak soon with Denver's first ever pedestrian planner. Email us your thoughts and even your photos of particular spots. News at CPR dot org. Again, news at CPR dot org, or reach out through Twitter at Colorado Matters. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The action starts right away in Eric Story's debut novel. Nothing short of dying takes readers all over Colorado's western slope. On a hunt for drug dealers who kidnapped the main character's sister, Eric Story grew up in Rangeley and spent summers in the wilderness outside of Glenwood Springs. And he joins us now from the CPR studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. And Eric, welcome to the program. That's great to be here. So, in the first few pages, we learn that this main character, Clyde Barr, was in prison. His family isn't terribly fond of him. Uh, but one of his sisters is actually an outcast too, and、uh, the two were abused as kids. Now that sister is in trouble and needs Clyde's help. It's a lot happening in the first few pages. What went into packing so much into so so few pages? Well, a lot of rewrites. That's <laughs> actually how that happened. You, you start. You want the a lot of action in the beginning to hook. Most of the re- readers of this genre, anyway. But when you rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, eventually you get to that, that condensed action. I think. And so it's about stripping words, getting the text more and more bare and more and more impactful. Yes, it is. Do you like rewriting, or do you find it frustrating? I actually really like it. You get that's what's so much fun about writing is that you have all these chances to do it right. Can do it again and again and again until it's perfect. Until or until as it's close perfect. to perfect as you're going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you? What is your barometer for perfect? How do you know when to stop? I、uh, we'll probably when I get sick of it after like the fiftieth rewrite, I stop because there really isn't. It really is no perfect. You can't. You you always want to tweak one more word or switch it for a different one at some point. Is it really fifty times that you rewrite? Uh, some some scenes, yes. <laughs> and in between, do you have people read, or is it entirely your own judgment about when it's perfect? I have、uh, beta readers.、Uh, usually after like the second draft, I'll I'll write just the story out for me, and then clean it up, and then have people read it and tell me what's wrong, what they think is wrong, and then I'll rewrite for me again, and then put it back out there for the beta readers. I didn't know there was a term for it, beta readers. And are those like friends of yours or people you hire? Friends, my wife is the, the ultimate beta reader. She gets it the first look, but then yeah, there's other friends. Does she like doing it? I think so. You'd have to ask her. <laughs> she seems to be. She she seems to be 
to enjoy it, yeah. Okay. She seems to. She's generous enough to do it. One reviewer yes. describes your protagonist, Clyde Barr, this way. Picture Chuck Norris playing a sort of MacGyver renegade with a dodgy past. And another calls Clyde Barr a gallant idiot. <laughs> how, how, would, how would you describe him? Uh, both are pretty apt, I guess. <laughs> He's a wandering adventurer that has been trying to do good his whole while well, trying to help those that need help. I wouldn't say it's it's good in his mind, but other people don't see it that way. Um, I, the first description is actually one of my favorite ones: the MacGyver, the wilderness, wilderness MacGyver, Chuck Norris action figure almost. There's more to it when you read the book. There's actually like you know personality, but but that is the way he comes across to a lot of people. Are you that way? You know, very adept in in the wilderness. I'm decent. I prefer to be out there. This is all very strange. This I'm in a small room surrounded by computers and electronics. It's very very different. There in our studio in Grand Junction. I wonder if there's more than the studio that's different. Is is there something that feels different about this? sort of literary world, um, because I, you're, you're new to it. Yeah, everything about it is very strange. I, I'm forced to ex, you know, expand my um, my knowledge of the world because there's much more travel and talking to people and speaking in front of people is all very new when I spend most of my time either behind a keyboard or out in the middle of nowhere. Actually, it's before I had to go on book tour, spent two summers, you know, sleeping in a tent in a campground. So this is a big shift. Is it hard to to do interviews like this? Yeah, it's very, it's not like painful, but it's very uh, odd. It's different. It's a new, it's a new experience for me. I remember um, years ago interviewing a really brilliant investigative reporter, and he had a, a real hard time articulating thoughts in speech in part because he's able to craft words so carefully when he writes and he wants to do the same thing when he speaks. And so he took a a long time and there were pauses. And I wonder if, if that ability to write and rewrite, you know, up to 50 times is actually what you yearn for in, in the kind of communication we're having. Do you think there's a parallel there? Oh, absolutely. I'd much rather, you know, take your question, figure it out for, uh, you know, a couple of minutes, right? And then oh, that wasn't good enough and start, start over. And then, you know, on the third or fourth, hand you back uh, my answer under the door. You know, that's <laughs> kind of how, how writers work usually. Well, I'm very grateful you've joined us. I think it's very generous. And, and back to Clyde Barr, your main character. I think he too is a man of few words. What do you think motivates him? You, you say that he, he thinks he's doing right. It doesn't always turn out that that way. But what what is his motivation? Well, his biggest motivation is to help those that are getting picked on, I guess would be the simplest way to put it. So sometimes when he does that, um, the people getting picked on, there's more to it. You know, if, if it's a conflict, say, in Africa that he fought in, there's it's a lot bigger politically and he gets himself even in more trouble. He's, he tries to simplify the world, I think, and that's what gets him in. In some of these predicaments, that makes him a gallant idiot, as you know they said. <laughs> yes, the gallant idiot. That was another reviewer's description of him. You also have this terrifying character named Zeke, someone that Clyde Barr met in prison. How did you dream Zeke up? 
That, he was kind of an amalgamation of all these people I've met uh, when I've worked these you know seasonal jobs out in the boonies. He's the, the mix of all the ones that I've worked with that scared me. There's some very <laughs> crazy people out there that they spend so much time out alone in the wilderness that they become a little off. And so I just put all those together and made this this you know lunatic mountain man. You have guided sled dogs yourself in the past, guided horse trips, worked as a ranch hand, all sorts of odd jobs. Mm. What is it about these folks that you have met that's unhinged? You know, um, that they just can't relate to people, that they're paranoid or what? Uh, both and then more. It's, it's almost a complete break from societal reality. They, they, they're fine most of the time if they're surrounded by trees and rocks, but when they've broken away from people and they, don't, they have no way to relate with them anymore. So it makes them look, some of them dangerous around other humans. Eric's story, your own story, is really um, intoxicating. I read that you used your last $9 to send a manuscript of this book to the literary agent. That's true. It was the last $9 in our checking account that month. We were living paycheck to paycheck. It was a, it was a long shot, but it, it paid off. And it was actually the, the first the, the 10 pages and a query letter. And then I got the call back from Lee Child's agent, who was interested and eventually took me on. Yeah, so this is a big name in the publishing world, Lee Childs, right? Because... Um, um, the Jack Reacher. Yeah. yeah, Jack Reacher, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. So are you still working odd jobs? I work s- summer seasonally, yes. And then right in the winter. Who encouraged you to send the manuscript? Was that you? Was that your own gumption or what? No, that was my wife. I've... <laughs> I sent out a bunch on my own and got so many reject. I got I lost track at fifty. Well, I stopped writing them down on the spreadsheet at fifty rejections, and then my wife says there were more. But she eventually, I was about to give up, and eventually she pushed me into uh, just sending it out to my uh, my dream agent, somebody that would uh, represent maybe represent somebody with similar characters or write similar characters, and I. That's when we spent the last $9 to send it out to Darley. It was our last shot, pretty much. You talked with Westward about how getting this book deal actually made life a bit uncomfortable in the small town where you were living, Rangeley, because your neighbors had recently gotten laid off from work in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a rough time for most people in that industry. And I was trying to, you know, not brag. (laughs) I didn't want to upset anybody, but it was a little uncomfortable. Because they were aware of your success. Yes. And it's it's a really hard time there. You've uh, got a Google alert so that you see all the reviews, good and bad. Nothing Short of Dying was included in a New York Times book review list of the latest and best in crime fiction. But you also got this from Kirkus. Their review said that the novel moves along well enough, but the way it strings together violent action scenes has a paint-by-numbers quality. The review also called the dialogue flat. What do you do with bad reviews? I try to ignore them. And, and like Kirkus especially is usually rough for a lot of people. But the, the things that they say that are negative, I'll try to keep in the back of my mind. I'm not going to directly go after those flaws, but I'll keep it in mind while I'm writing the next book. 
Eric's story wrote nothing short of dying. He now lives in Grand Junction. You can read the first chapter of his literary debut at cprnews.org. This is Colorado Matters. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado Springs has changed a lot in the last century, and the city's fine arts center reflects that. As CPR's Corey Jones explains, the center's new ownership means more changes are coming. The Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center is one of the city's oldest and biggest cultural institutions, but it's in need of some help. That's where Colorado College comes in. The school will own the center in four years. Fine Arts Center President David Dahlin calls this move a game changer. He says the center still has some debt from a few years ago. The Fine Arts Center had been kind of experiencing a period of decline since our big expansion in 2007, which hit in an unfortunate time with the downturn in the economy. The redevelopment cost around $30 million. It brought theater renovations, rehearsal space, and new galleries. But Dahlin says it tapped out donors. And then the recession made it even harder for people to give. Memberships are no longer a consistent source of revenue, and the center gets little public funding. It's operated on very thin margins for a very long time. That's not healthy. This place used to be the epicenter of the creative community. It started as the Broadmoor Art Academy in 1919 by Julie Penrose, who, with her husband Spencer, was a big player in Colorado Springs. They had this grand vision of helping Colorado Springs be a cultured city and a tourism mecca. The rise of the Art Academy coincided with the gold rush in Colorado Springs. Times were good during the Roaring Twenties, when people had money to invest in the arts. And they did. That's according to Matt Mayberry. He's the city's cultural services manager. And that goes through peaks and valleys over the years. As the economy changes, as those people who have the resources to support artists have changed. Then the Academy inherited a huge collection of Southwestern art and needed more space. In 1936, it formally reopened as the Colorado Springs Fine Arts Center. It had a theater, a museum, and an art school. The goal was to make this an iconic destination during the Great Depression. Then came World War II. The military started to define the city's identity in 1942. That's when the Fort Carson Army Base opened. In some ways, a military community and an arts community have very different views of the world. And, Mayberry says, a major cultural shift ensued as Colorado Springs grew more conservative. And all the while, the Fine Arts Center has had a neighbor in Colorado College. It abuts the college. It's literally a block away from my office. Jill Tiefenthaler is president of the private liberal arts school. She says this proximity is a key factor to the merger. Given the close alignment of our missions and our location and our history, it seems a natural fit. Colorado College does have an arts center, and it offers a master's degree in arts and teaching. Looking ahead, the school has committed more than $20 million to the merger. But aside from some staff integration, there are lots of details to work out. Tiefenthaler talks of strategic plans and missions. But as far as the outcomes of all this... I think it'd be too premature for me to say what we will end up with this year, but we look forward to getting a lot of input. On the other side of downtown sits Cottonwood Center for the Arts. It rents out studios to artists and also has classrooms, a small theater, and a textile studio. 
Cottonwood's director, John Corey, says Colorado Springs needs a Master's of Fine Arts program to bolster its creative community. Furthermore, Corey wants the new Fine Arts Center at Colorado College to push the envelope with its programming. A museum's responsibility is to make sure that we are giving opportunity for unique expression of universal ideas. Back at the Fine Arts Center, President David Dahlin says the center has played that role in the past. He points to what he calls the wild and bohemian era during the center's early days as an academy. They would do like nude figure drawing out on the lawn in full daylight. Dahlin says now the center strives for a balance between art that's traditional and art that's edgy. And while Colorado College has no rules about what types of art to display, Dahlin says this merger will change some of the center's artistic vision. This has been a community institution for almost 100 years, and the community is letting go of its control. And that's always a scary thing. Dahlin says in return, the center will have the school's resources. He hopes to bring in guest artists to lecture and to work with the community. He says that's essential for the Fine Arts Center to serve all of Colorado Springs. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us on Colorado Public Radio.